0: Given recent events, I think the number one person everyone in Estes wants to meet right now is Chief Wolf, Chief of the Fire Department in Estes Valley. He's gonna talk a little bit about our readiness for the, the past week and a half, um, and our preparation for the future. He's also gonna tell us a little bit about why he got into the fire service. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Today's interview is a very timely interview with Chief Wolf. He's been in the limelight the past week or so. And I think it's a good time to talk about um, fire safety, but also to get the backstory on how Chief Wolf got uh, migrated to Estes Park. We were sharing a little bit about the fact that he was in Texas before he came here. Chief Wolf, give us a little background about growing up along the Beltway and then moving uh, your your uh, graduate school career taking you to, to Texas?
1: Sure. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I grew up in the, the Washington, D.C. area. Um, family moved there a long time ago. And so grew up in the D.C. area, knew that as home. Uh, went to school for geology, uh, which took me to Pennsylvania and then out to Washington State and then New York as I went, worked my way through grad school. And it was when I started as a freshman in college that I, I first started as a volunteer firefighter. So back in 2000 started in the fire service, um, was a volunteer all through that. Uh, uh, My wife and I met in grad school. Her background is also in geology and education. And so uh, when we finished up grad school in 2010, we moved down to Houston, Texas, uh, worked for a large oil company there as a research scientist, continued volunteering with a a large combination department, a 600-member combination department that that served a suburb of Houston with about 400,000 residents. continued working uh, as a volunteer there and then started working part time for that department running the training program uh, specifically focused on volunteer training and um, revamping that training program and so in in my six years in Houston uh, started to get to that point I had a very um, active geology career I had the the fire service piece that was taking a lot of time and and that's when started our family and and grew and had our our first child Um, so got to a point that didn't have time for everything and so we Saw that as an opportunity to to reprioritize and look at where we wanted to be. And and so back in 2016, was fortunate to uh, apply for and and get the job as the fire chief here in Estes Park. So we moved here in June of 2016. Um, My youngest son was born here in Estes in January of 2017. So having one child in August in Houston and January in Estes, very different experiences. Uh, Learned a lot from that. And um, so, and now we've been here for the last four years Um, My wife Danielle's uh, on the school board uh, continuing her connection with education and and obviously I've been involved primarily with the fire department and uh, it's it's been um, a really interesting transition going from where our primary emergency management planning in Houston was about hurricanes and floods uh, here coming to Estes Park having to, to get up to speed a little bit more on wildfire. There's a lot of overlap between emergency management when you talk about incidents that scale but obviously some differences and getting to know the community and, and our own capabilities here. And so, uh, yeah, so that's what moved me to Estes Park. And, and you know, great to be back in a department that's primarily volunteer. You know I'm always like to remind people we have five career staff and 40 volunteers that serve this valley. Um, big emphasis on, yeah, developing our training programs for volunteers here has, has been a big focus over the last few years. And, and I think we're seeing some dividends on that.
0: Right. Well, and great that you were involved in volunteer training in Houston, so you came with some good experience in how to train volunteers. Uh, yep.
1: Yeah, I think that was a big piece of being successful in getting this position. I, I know that was a priority for the board and definitely continues to be a priority for the organization.
0: Yeah, definitely. Another thing that you mentioned just really stuck with me. Um, I've been able over the past week to talk with a lot of emergency management personnel. And it seems like whether you are managing a hurricane or a fire, um, there's some basic premises of emergency management that apply across the board. How have you seen it done the best in terms of communication and planning?
1: Sure, I think the, the single most important piece is that uh, it's there's a huge relationships component and those relationships don't get built the day the emergency starts. They have to get built before the emergency. and And so there's been an immense amount of planning that goes in before the emergency, trying to imagine what kind of worst case scenarios could we face, having some, some, a primary and an alternative plan for dealing with those types of things. And of course, these incidents can be very complex as far as the, the different moving pieces. So recognizing that no one person can be an expert in all of them. So building that team that brings together those experts that can work together to, to get things done. So having a, having a team that's cooperative and, and trust each other um, leads to the best outcome.
0: That trust is a really critical element because if everyone's going to have an assignment or responsibility over a certain area, we can't have people duplicating that role. And, yeah. and there needs to be really good, clear communication over what's happening so we don't end up um, doing mo- multiple unnecessary things.
1: Yeah, and it's all also really interesting because it we have to get out of our silos. This uh, an incident of this scale can't be solved by just the fire department or just the police department. So we end up with a lot of people working together that may not work together on a day-to-day basis or reporting to each other that don't report to one another on a day-to-day basis. And and that's where that trust comes in. It's like, you know, I don't uh, on my day job, I don't report to you, but now I do. And so I have to trust that we're, we're all in this together. We all have the same priorities, the same End uh, goal in mind, the same mission, and if you're you're unified in that mission and objectives, then then things go really well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I know that um, personally, being a n- new person in town, I had the utmost trust in your direction in this most recent evacuation in Estes Park. There was a there was a moment when um, it seemed like there's no way the Grand Lake fire is going to the troublesome fire is going to come over that ridge, and and then it did. Um, Did you go back and forth in your belief whether it was going to trigger an evacuation on our side or were you pretty certain?
1: Um, Yeah, so we've, some of this goes back a ways. We we started looking at the Cameron Peak fire for the Estes Valley really back on Labor Day in September um, when we started having fire coming down Chapin Pass and, and that one too, we were worried about it getting into the Fall River drainage and we had our trigger set out for when we were gonna have to start evacuating portions of town and then we got a snowstorm back over Labor Day weekend that slowed down the fire and held it up in shape and Pass so a lot of those plans that we had had gotten dusted dusted off and, and refreshed then we watched the fire make a push down into Glenhaven and and having evacuations in, in the Glenhaven area working with them through that period um, in in late October and then seemingly out of nowhere these troublesome fire coming over the divide and so while our eyes had all been focused up north and we've been focused on the cameron peak fire and thinking about what that would look like we now had this new element um seeing these troublesome fire blow up we started we had triggers uh, identified uh we didn't anticipate it was going to jump where it did but we we understood that jumping the divide was a threat and in getting into forest canyon Um, On that Thursday morning, we had rumors that it had jumped the divide, but because of the altitude and the terrain, no one could get eyes on it and we couldn't confirm it. And it was a, it was a really hard conversation about, um, well, we don't want to evacuate an entire community on a rumor that it might be over here. So how do we, how do we uh, work that out? Uh, Unfortunately that, you know, in order to get that confirmed, the time it took to get the multi-mission aircraft in the air that has infrared capabilities Um, Took a a couple of hours. And so the fire made it down to the bottom of Spruce Creek by the time we were able to confirm that yes We do have fire on this side and that definitely compressed our timeline for for doing evacuations Um, We've talked about, you know evacuation triggers are really more about time than they are about distance and and making sure that we have enough time to get people out of the way How long is it going to take people to mobilize? um, And fortunately our community was had been paying attention and they had been prepared so that when we did uh, determine a need to start evacuating. Um, things actually went pretty orderly. They went pretty smoothly. Uh, I know a lot of people felt like they were stuck in traffic, but um, no one had fire chasing them. They had smoke. That uh, the People were very polite. They were able to help each other get out, and we were able to evacuate the entire valley in about four hours, uh, which is an experience I hope to never have to repeat. I'm sure all of us would feel that, uh, but yeah, it, it was It was definitely a very interesting day and a lot of conversations going on with a lot of players between the incident management team the park us the town and um and the police department about what's the right thing to do at the right time
0: right (laughs) well said because um i'm sure that that had to be a really tough call number one to ask uh, all of the um, guests in town to pack up and leave. And then mm-hmm. for us to realize, no, all of us who live here need to pack up and leave too. I was actually yeah. going back to my rental house just to pack up for voluntary evacuation when I was met by a sheriff saying, oh, no, it's mandatory now. <laughs> so, you know, the the yeah. timeline was shifting quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we very much wanted to to have a nice gap between when you went on voluntary and when you'd have to go to mandatory, give people lots of time. That's of course, what we would prefer. Um, Back in 2017, we did a a workshop uh, where we looked at what happened in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, where you had a fire in in Smoky Mountain National Park that burned out in the community of Gatlinburg. Um, We looked at what had happened in Paradise, California with the Camp Fire, and that prompted a conversation a few years ago. Well, what would that look like in Estes Park? How fast could a fire move when winds are blowing at these speeds, when fuels are this dry? And when we did those models back then, we, we saw that fire could theoretically cross our entire community in about four hours. Mm-hmm. And, and that image was definitely in our minds as we were thinking about like, well, when do we pull the trigger? We don't wanna kick people out of town prematurely. We don't wanna kick people out unnecessarily, um, but we've been very clear our, our highest priority is life safety. And so having that image in our head has been, you know, part of like, well, you know, we can't, we can't risk letting people stay in this path, uh, knowing what could happen.
0: And knowing how swiftly that fire was moving on the lake, uh, Grand Lake side. It was gaining an amazing speed. And that's, that's what led a fire under me to, to move quickly and to not um, delay. And I want to believe that um, the, the timing of the evacuation, you kept in mind the fact that it would take about four hours to get people out of town. So that wasn't a surprise to you.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, we had a lot of things that were uh, big positives as far as that day. Um, We didn't have as many tourists in town as we could have in a typical September, October date. Um, You know, you look at dates like Scott Fest weekend when we could have upwards of 70 to 80,000 people in our community. Certainly we weren't at those numbers. Um, a, A positive was that kids were home from school that day. That would have been an extra complexity of trying to get reunify parents with their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big challenge. It's something that obviously is on our mind. How do we do that safely? Um, so there were a lot of of things that helped us make that evacuation more orderly and faster than it could have been. So uh, it's where you you plan for the worst case, you hope for the best case, and and you know we and again our, our citizens being prepared made a big difference.
0: Right now, can you help kind of tell the story a bit on why it's so important? for evacuations because there were probably some people who said no thanks i think i'd rather defend my house tell us Mm -hmm. that perspective from your job
1: sure um so again we we always want people to understand and a lot of the evacuations about communicating how we perceive the risk and and what we perceive the risk to be um ultimately there's a personal component to that you can choose to accept that risk or not um you know if you aren't, aren't trained to deal with that or you don't really know what it's going to look like you think you have an idea it's easy we're bad at estimating our own risk um and uh, i always love the joke that uh the risk i took was calculated but it turns out i'm bad at math and this is about <laughs> really understanding what that risk looks like so for us as emergency managers as firefighters we're anticipating a fire that can move through town at one to two miles an hour um advancing and the fire behavior that we've seen on this fire has been a fire front miles wide with flame lengths hundreds of feet tall like that's not something we're going to stand up to that's not something that you at your home with your garden hose are going to have a good outcome with so we want to get people out of the way it frees us up to be able to operate our our fire apparatus a lot um, more nimbly and, and get in where we need to and And otherwise, we're shifting a lot of our focus to making sure that we're protecting human life because that will be our priority and that distracts us from the firefighting mission, which is going to protect property. Um, We anticipate that we're going to have to shut off utilities in areas where we expect to have fire impacted. Uh, As fire blows through, you can have uh, power lines fall. And now if we have energized power lines across the roadway, that limits our access as opposed to lines we've shut off. If there's still gas in areas that can cause fires to be much more extreme and dangerous so we want to get all of those things secured and if people are still in their home expecting to have power to open their garage door when they change their mind or to run their pumps for their sprinklers and now we've shut that off suddenly the calculated risk they took you know the math just changed on them right so um so all of those are are parts of like why we communicate that risk out we want to get people out when we can um so that we can get our people in to engage where we think we need to and We got very fortunate in that the the fire got hung up on Steep Mountain when it did. We uh, on, let's see, I guess that would have been uh, Friday night into Saturday morning. The way the fire had been moving, the winds that we had that night, we had sustained winds at 50 miles an hour gusting to 70. Um, Our fire models were expecting it to be in the YMCA campus by daybreak. And, and so we were getting a surge of resources in. We called up mutual aid and got an additional 36 engines with 100 more firefighters on top of all the resources the incident management team had here to help with that. And as we're surging those resources in, we don't want to have uh, people trying to come out at the same time. Um, so it, it's you know we were preparing for some pretty bad fire behavior to come through town and. Uh, I said we were fortunate that the fire hung up where it did. We were fortunate that it was able to get held up until the snow arrived. All those things, you know, you'd rather be lucky than good. Uh, I think we were both. Um, I think we were as prepared as we could be, but we certainly got very fortunate with the snow.
0: Now, um, I feel a little bit ashamed that I don't know if we lost any structures in this fire. Between the Cameron Peak Fire and the Troublesome Fire, how many structures overall were lost?
1: Um, between the two fires, I believe we're sitting around 800 structures total. I believe each fire has had around 400 structures. Um, now that gets broken down to how many were residences versus outbuildings like a shed or a detached garage. And, and then they'll break it down further about how many were primary residences. And I don't remember all those exact numbers. Um, we, we did have structures lost in the Haven area from the Cameron Peak fire. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had structures lost in the National Park as a result of the East Troublesome Fire that jumped over the divide, the Thompson Zone. Okay. Um, and there were a lot of structures lost on the west side, both in the park and out of the park. a lot of homes. Um, the East Troublesome Fire did have some fatalities in the Grand Lake side mm-hmm. um, that have been publicized. Um, but it's you know as far as uh, on the east side here, um, there were some structures lost in the park. Uh, but the fire was able to be held up west of Bear Lake Road. We didn't have any losses within um, the town or, or Estes Valley.
0: Which was a great relief for those of us who spend half our lives at Bear Lake Road, um, but the, the pictures from Grand Lake are still really grand. Yeah. When you said 800, you're including the Grand Lake side. Um, yes,
1: yeah, there it was around 400 on that Grand Lake side, and and it's it's really easy to get focused on our own Challenges and our own inconveniences. Of yes, we you know everyone in the Estes Valley was displaced from their home for around a week. We were fortunate; everyone in the Estes Valley got to go back to their home. Um, people in in Glenhaven were displaced earlier and displaced longer than than Estes Valley, and and not everybody got to go back to their home because their home isn't there anymore. And on the west side, that that impact was even greater. And and it's it's I think important to remind people to keep that perspective of. We really were fortunate on this side and um, it was definitely not without its challenges. Uh, There was nothing easy or, um, you know, it was an emotional day for people to load up and leave, not knowing if they'd get to come back. And, and now in some ways that, you know, they're very fortunate they have a place to come back to. And and, uh, it's unfortunate that not everyone has that benefit for them as far as um, other areas. And uh, that said, we, we were lucky on, on a lot of that but it's important to remember what's going on in some of those neighboring communities.
0: Right, and you, you painted a picture for me earlier that I wasn't quite aware of, that even though we sat in traffic for hours and it literally took me three hours to get to Lyons from my office, in uh, on the Grand Lake side, on the west side of the park, it was a very different picture.
1: Yeah, on the, on the Grand Lake side, some of those homes had about 20 minutes to get out. And as they drove away, there's fire on the side of the road, there's trees falling down. Um, that evacuation was uh, a much different experience than having the, the skies looked very ominous here without a doubt. Um, but that's very different than having, you know, flaming tree branches falling across the roadways you're trying to drive through. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, the people had some very different experiences with this fire.
0: It's, it's important for me to realize that there's a very different experience, because we can't say that we understand how you feel if we haven't experienced that. On our side, the the, the incoming fog made it look like we were surrounded by a ring of fire, where we weren't actually surrounded by a ring of fire, but it felt <laughs> ominous on this side.
1: Yep, and we'd, we'd been looking at, we could see the fire that was burning up on Storm Mountain from Estes Park, and I, you know, it's we see the fire, we know it's there. It's no longer this abstract concept of a fire miles and miles away. That's just a line on a map. We can see it. Um, and you know the fire that was to our north was actually less of a threat to us because of just the way that every fire is moved. You look at every fire in the state of Colorado right now and they're all blowing to the east. They're all being driven by that westerly wind. So the fire to our north would have taken a long time to get down, but it looked the worst because we could see the flames. Right. Um, but I do think that helped prime people and get people ready so that when it came time to evacuate, people didn't care which fire they were evacuating from. They just knew that there was a threat and they needed to move. And, and that said led to a successful outcome. Uh, you know, We were fortunate to have the conditions that we did of not having fire in town when people were driving out. Right. Um, but that's where it's always a tough call for emergency managers. We said we, no one wants to displace um people from their homes uh it's it's hard to watch my own family load up in a car and drive away uh and not be able to go with them because i have a job to do here uh but it's i'd certainly rather get them out of town and then know that we can engage safely on this fire or more safely on this fire um we're also very acutely aware that we have a tourist economy and you know it's not great for everybody that relies on sales tax revenue and retail sales to flush all the tourists out of town. Um, So that's partly where we know that's a hard decision and, and we make it because we, we think it's the right one. And then we want to get people back as soon as we think it's safe to do so. So uh, obviously a lot of competing pressures.
0: And you did respond to the questions about when we can open up again. In fact, I think several were, were surprised to hear that we opened up, Faster than we thought we would, and people were still scrambling to get back into the office, so I appreciate yeah. your, um, your economic outlook and trying to um, create open up the highways again.
1: Yeah, and, and it's always a tough balance I mean obviously we, we had a lot of those conversations, you know pros and cons of opening different areas up, pros and cons of encouraging tourism again, what that looks like, mm-hmm. uh, and how to manage that messaging and that's where we've had a lot of joint conversations with the chamber with the Lodging Association um, to, to discuss some of those and then have that messaging reflect the, how the group feels of, well, not everything's open yet, but if you feel it's safe to come back up, you know, if, if we thought that having tourists back in town would endanger the, the people who live here, we wouldn't approve it. We wouldn't sign off on that. Um, one thing I think is worth mentioning is a lot of these decisions, I talked about the importance of the team uh, they're they're built as share decisions, so we all share the risk. It's not one agency making that decision. So when we were making decisions about lifting evacuations, it included representatives from the incident management team, including the incident commander, the operations, uh, the local resources that are working this branch, um, people from the fire district, the the police department, the sheriff's office and the, the Rocky Mountain National Park. Are, we're all together to sh- to talk about it and making sure that we came up with a plan that everyone agreed with. And so that there wasn't one priority that was gonna win out. It wasn't just about, well, it's important to get the businesses open and that's what's gonna dominate everything else. It wasn't just about being overly cautious and saying, well, the fire's not out, so we don't know, so we wanna keep everything totally shut down. We, we made sure to come to a spot that we could all agree on and if you've ever sat in one of these planning meetings, a lot of times they end with going around the room and it's sort of like sitting in the emergency exit row on the plane. Everybody has to say, I support the plan and, and make sure that it's true that we all are on board because this is a decision that we all want to share. And, and when you take that personal piece and like, yes, I'm going to own this decision, um, it, you, you think about it a little bit differently. And we understand the, the sides of that, that decision that has to be made.
0: It's great to know the, ne- amount, the number of people who collaborated on that decision. And I think it's important for all of us to, to get that big picture. Um, so it doesn't seem that there is an arbitrary decision being made. It, it's funny the assumptions that people will make without, uh, in the absence of information. So I'm glad we have this chance to paint a picture. So um, uh, granted that all of us hope that we never have to do this again. Um, Chief Wolf, what would be the, the most important things for our community to remember if we needed to evacuate on this scale uh, another time? Yep.
1: Um, so I think one of the biggest things to remind people is, even though we were very fortunate on this fire, there will be another fire someday. We, we know that we live in the mountains, we live in the wildland urban interface. Fire is a natural part of the landscape, whether it's human caused or, or lightning or, or natural. We know that fire can happen. So it's important for us to be ready if we're gonna live in the mountains. Um, we, we expect snowstorms, we expect these other things. So we should be prepared in the same way. Now that doesn't mean you keep your car packed to evacuate all the time, uh, but it's, it's great for people to at least have a list. And if, after going through this evacuation experience, I'm sure people are like, wow, it was real, I'm really glad I brought this. It was really silly I brought this. I wish I had brought that. There were some the funny stories
0: about, I brought dog toys, but I forgot my toothbrush.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and so now's the time for everybody to sit down and write down that list. You know what? I really want to make sure that if I ever have to do this again, these are the things I have to make sure I take with me. Um, these are things it turns out I don't need to waste my time on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, so having that list is really important. Um, having a realistic assessment on how long it takes um, to get that stuff ready. So realizing if I've got large animals, if I have horse trailers, uh, when wildfire season comes, I need to make sure that my tires aren't flat, that they've got air in them. So if I need that, that trailer at a moment's notice, if I need to move my RV at a moment's notice, it's ready. It's got fuel in it. It's got the tires filled. Everything's ready to go so that I, that I don't have to be scrambling for that piece. Um, and then, of course, if we feel that threat's there, we're going to do our best to communicate that. Um, but a lot of that's that personal responsibility piece, having yourself be ready, um, being signed up for those emergency alerts, having that situational awareness about what's going on with fires around us. Right. Um, as you can imagine, we've learned a lot through this experience and there's a lot of stuff that went well because of prior planning and and opportunities for us to do better. So we want to, we're capturing that right now, making sure that we've got those pieces in place so we can give people as much notice as possible. Um, that we can be as clear in our communication as possible. Obviously, evacuation routes is a big one. That's, it's hard. You might say, well, I live on this side of town, so I'm, I'm going to take Highway 34 or I'm going to take County Road 43 until County Road 43 is closed because of the Cameron Peak Fire or the Calwood Fire or the Left Hand Canyon Fire or Trail Ridge Road had snow on it at one point. So yeah. um, getting people to plan ahead is huge. And, and the more prepared people are, the more successful those evacuations go if we have to do them. Um, so, and, and then just, yeah, the messaging, listening to those emergency messages as they come out, you know, we try and provide a lot of information about this is where we think the threat is. Here's where we think you should go with that. Um, and uh, a lot of people learned, you know, that their homeowner's insurance provides things like evacuation, uh, funds for evac- if they're displaced, paying for hotels to help with those costs. Now's the time to kind of figure that out and yeah, understand like what kind healthy. of resources you have right yep. that 's a
0: really good point there's so many emotional um, components to this too when you 're leaving yeah. the, the emotional decisions that that guide what you take and what you don 't we, we packed half of our car with um, pictures and memorabilia from our kids, all of the artwork of twelve years of school <laughs> and yeah. when I got back from the last evacuation I did we we decided when we unpacked to take pictures of all that artwork and then go ahead and throw it away because I have the pictures (laughs) to preserve the memory. It helped us to conserve space. I didn't do anything about all of the fishing rods and guns in my husband's car, but (laughs) it's an, it's an amazing um, how much work you need to do to prepare yourself mentally for what you can live without. And I think it's a good exercise too, to just know what our priorities are.
1: Yeah. And, and we're, we're emotional beings and you should expect that as those emotions come in, your cognitive ability is going to decrease. Um, I love my wife. She's an incredibly smart person. She's a very competent person In the heat of an evacuation worried about loading up a three and a six year old and a couple of dogs. Yeah. That cognitive ability is gone. Yeah. So that's where this planning, when things are calm, when nothing's on fire, is the time to write that stuff down and then it's just a checklist and uh you know we we've seen there's great books about why we've gone to that why pilots use checklists to check things and make sure that we can have this emotionally detached response that will be better than don't count on your emotions to steer you in the right direction during that crisis Um, so now's the time to plan
0: great advice well, and I think what we'll do is post some of those checklists in the show notes as well as, well as any um, just an information on understanding wildfires and taking precautions in your own, on your own property or when you're camping. I would love to share some, some resources that you have.
1: Absolutely. And we've tried to put, there, there's a lot of different sources for that. We've tried to compile those onto our website to help make them easier to find. Um, so our website is estesvalleyfire.org slash wildfire and under that link um, there's information about living in the wildland urban interface what you can do to prepare your home a self-assessment checklist contact if you want us to come out and take a look at your property and give you some feedback hey here's an area where you could do a little more Um, obviously you you can choose to follow through on that or not that's totally your choice Um, there's information on there on our ready set go program how like, when's the time to get ready? What's that look like to get set? What's an evacuation look like? With some of those checklists, of make sure you take these things. Don't forget those important bank documents or things that you're gonna, your insurance company might ask for after the fact. Right. Um, how do you keep those things safe? Uh, and so there's a lot of those resources on uh, on our website that tries to steer you to those right places. And and, and we're gonna continue to, to add an update to those Um, We received a grant through the International Association of Fire Fire Chiefs um, to increase some of that educational outreach, get resources to help with that, um, to put up some kiosks around town to help with that messaging, to help people understand from a local perspective what they need to know, or for a visitor, what they should know about being in a community that has these risks. I grew up on the East Coast. Wildfire wasn't a problem in the D.C. area. We had plenty of other challenges, but wildfire wasn't one of them. (laughs) And- And so when someone from that area comes to visit, they just don't know any better. And so how do we help them understand, look, now that you're in this place, here's something we want you to know. Here's how to keep yourself safe. Here's how to sign up for these alerts short term. Um, So so that's all work that we're going to be doing.
0: Yeah, from a chamber perspective, I'm thinking maybe we need wildfire preparedness cards in hotels so that people can grab something really easy.
1: Yep. And, and we, we definitely want to work with all our partners to, to come up with some of these ideas because I know what information I want to get into people's heads and other people have a better sense on how to get it there. Whether yeah. we get it into those hotel rooms, it's on the reservations that get sent out. It's like, you're coming to visit. Awesome. Here's some stuff we want you to know. Right. Um, there's, there's lots of that uh, opportunities for that. And of course, making it timely so that people don't just you know, block it out. Absolutely. Uh, but with the goal of keeping people safe so they can all come and enjoy this beautiful area. We, we all moved here because we love the mountains. We wanna be in the mountains. We wanna be around trees. Um, it just comes with some extra th- pieces we need to be aware of.
0: Right, and we're so glad to see that everything is still around, at least right in Estes Park. Um, and it's, it's yeah. a beautiful place right now because it's clear and cool and um, yeah. everyone's really happy that um, we could come back home. I'm happy that your kids and wife are back home with you now. So I'm gonna let you get back to your life, but thanks for spending some time with us today.
1: Absolutely, I guess one last thing I'll add before we disconnect. Um, it, it's also useful to keep in perspective, fire is a natural process. And, and while none of us are gonna be excited about seeing the, the black charred areas uh, next year as we go out in the park and, and areas that we enjoyed, but lodgepole needs stand replacing fire to be healthy those areas that had a lot of beetle kill this cleared out a lot of that dead timber. And now the the seeds are dropping and we're going to start to see new forests grow. We're going to see new vegetation coming in. And, and, you know, the park that we love is, is just fine. It's going to be there. What we love about this area will still be there. It'll just be a little bit different for a couple of years. And so protecting that human element is the most important because the forest is going to be okay. It, it, this is part of it.
0: Thanks for that perspective. A lot of people say it's so tragic, what a beautiful forest, but this is part of regeneration of life. Mm-hmm. And it's it's natural and we should expect it and we don't need to mourn it, we just need to move through it, right? Absolutely. Great. Well, thank right. you so much, Chief Wolf. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying Everyday Estes. Stay tuned here And most of all, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, so that you don't miss the stories you didn't know in Estes Park, sponsored by the Estes Valley Resiliency Collaborative, connecting this community to be the best place to live, work, and play.